All right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. So today, Larice, we're going to discuss and explore Greenville, Nova Scotia. And this community has uh, close ties to us, actually. So I always think about access to Greenville. And growing up in Yarmouth, it was really interesting for me to go to Greenville. I have an uncle that still lives in Greenville to this day. So I would head out to Greenville. And to get there, it's like a long, windy road. So it's really off the beaten path. And you would almost never know that the community even existed. In terms of my connections uh, to Greenville, my great-grandmother, Ethel Crawford, was from Greenville originally. And she married Edward Smith from Weymouth Falls. I have direct ties with uh, the Fells' family as well, too. Looking at my connections to the community, I mean, as we know, my family has ties to Yarmouth and connected to that is direct connections to Greenville. You know, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather are actually buried in one of the cemeteries around the Greenville Church. So I was visiting them not too long ago, and I had an opportunity to go through the community, and I can't wait to get back. And now to introduce our special guest, Troy Lawrence. Hello, Troy, and welcome to the Loyalist Connections podcast. Uh, Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to the community of Greenville. Well, it's interesting. It goes back uh, 10 years. No, I'm joking. (laughs) I'm a little older than 10. All right. But what happened is, uh, you know, I was born in Halifax. Now, I lived there for five years on Gottingen Street, Cornwallis Street I lived on, oh. right? So just off of uh, Gottingen Street. And at the age of five, um, I moved to Greenville because that's where my dad was originally from. And the old homestead was still there. So we built a house right beside the old homestead. So that's how I was affiliated with uh, Yarmouth. My mom grew up in Weymouth, but... My dad, of course, brought her to, to Yarmouth when we went, when I was five. But before that, they lived in Halifax, I think, for about seven years. What was it like growing up there, like from five on? Uh, you know what? It was a bit of a, a culture shock in a way, but it, it was a, a double-edged, double-edged yeah. sword. Um, because when I lived in Halifax, I used to go to the church, which was just down Cornwall the street. Cornwall Street. Yeah, Cornwall Street Church. And I used to love going there because we used to go downstairs and they had all mm-hmm. the kids and da-da-da. And because I wasn't going to school yet, from age probably two to, to five, I went to um, a daycare there, which was mm-hmm. in the basement. Right. And I remember playing with these big wooden blocks. And so just being down the street, having uh, people who look like me around a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was just going from Cornwall Street to there, which, you know, is only about three yeah. minute walk. My mom, my, my mom at the time worked at Klein's, which was right on the corner of Cornwallis and, and mm-hmm. Gaudigen, which was a big uh, uh, women's fashion clothing store. So she had an eye on us when we walked back and forth. So it it was great. So when I moved to Yarmouth when I was five, um, we were in a black community, right? So it was just like, you know, it was just like sleeping on a bed of feathers, right? It felt nice. comfortable. It felt great. And, um, you know, the people in our community were a mixed yeah. race. So you had uh, African Nova Scotian, but at the same time, you had a lot of indigenous influence, you know? That's an aspect we haven't explored. That's true, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Mi'kmaq. 
So we grew up with those skills, right? Um, you know, hunting, fishing, uh, a simple life. But what I, I realized in hindsight is, is we, we were in that area basically as a colony. We were colonized to be there and, and, and grew up there. But one of my first experiences realizing that I was black was um, when I was five years old. We, as my parents were, we were all excited the night before me going to school because there was a bus that picked us up and took us to school to Arcadia School, which is about seven kilometers mm-hmm. away. And my brother was two years older than me, so we got on the bus together. You know, new sneakers, your new pants, that that, and we got to the school, went into my classroom, and everything was great. I seen all these kids. Uh, to me, everybody looked the same because I'm used to kind of multicultural. Uh, atmosphere and um, there's probably 30 of us in the class and we had recess and then we had lunchtime and I was kind of picking out who my friends might be and having a great time but when I got ushered back after lunchtime I was put into another class and in that class the everybody looked like me but they weren't on the same level as me with respect to being advanced yeah. at that age and uh, I was wondering, why am I being put here? Mm. So come finding out, when I went home that day, I told my mom. And my mom came in and said, you know, what's going on? So what they had done is they put me in a classroom with what we call back then adjusted. Right? And they put me in the adjusted class because I was from Greenville. Right? And most of the kids from Greenville when I started thinking about it, they were all in the adjusted program. And that, when I say adjusted class, it was, you could be grade one up to grade six, all in the same class, right? So it, it really, really uh, threw me for a loop because I ended up doing really well in school. You know, I always was in the, the dean's list in junior high, mm-hmm. uh, elementary and high school. So if my mom hadn't have had the strength back then to be able to come in and say, hey, you know, what are you doing? I would have ended up being in that vein, Uh you know, Uh in that lane. So on this journey, we know about the waves of like the black migration. And we know that essentially the black loyalists, um, after the race ride in 1784, they some dispersed to like Yarmouth and Greenville. You can't, your, your family came a different path, but you ended up in Greenville anyways. Um, mm-hmm. So what was interesting, you kind of painted that picture about, you know, being in school, but you know, the day-to-day lifestyle, as you grew up, what was your day-to-day lifestyle like in that sense? Um, you mentioned about knowing that you were black. Did that come up in any other capacities as you got older, Troy? Oh, for sure. I mean, that was, that was a constant. You know, you can't change the color of your skin. So the way people look at you is not going to be the same way as they look at something else, right? Or somebody else. So, uh, you know, I, I try to focus a lot on academics and and um, and sports, right? Hey, you know what happens when you finally figure out that there is racism and that you are not the color that is predominant? Yeah. So what you try to do in your mind is try and and change yourself to fit in, right? And then as you become more and more aware of who you are and you get more educated and find out more about your history, 
then you start realizing I need to be who I really am, right? And but you can't do that until you really know who you are. Yeah. So you 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 hold a lot in. You don't say what you're say. You don't be who you are to be. Whether that's growing an afro or whether you know all those small things matter. But once you really truly know who you are, then you can be who you truly are. So I focused a lot, like I say, on sports and education to be able to fit in. And then there came a point in time where, you know, the more I got to know about who I was, that I could really be who I wanted to be. But all through through junior high, through high school, um, I probably didn't get as much as somebody else might. Like if we start looking at South End, People who grew up in South End having to walk from school through white neighborhoods to get home is going to, somebody's going to face a lot more than me getting on a bus and being dropped off in my community, right? So, and, and, and thinking about how Yarmouth was laid out back in the day, you did have the South End, you had um, Central, yep. and you had what was called Milton, mm -hmm. Okay. So South End were people who had less we're advantages, poor. for sure. Yeah, we were. Poor. That's, yeah. The, that's what the South End was known for. Yeah. yeah. Central was middle class. And then you had Milton, which was, you know, white and right. You know? <laughs> so you didn't, it's not any, it's not any place that you would go. Like, you didn't go to Milton. Uh, you might go to Central a little bit, but you'd probably be more comfortable in the south end but when i look at at how things were were set up we were really colonized you know there was a reason why there was a, a cluster of black people out in greenville and a cluster in south end and there was a reason why they didn't want us to to be together right you know strength is in numbers right you think it was strength Do you so think there's any other reasons you know for the divide or the separation well, it allowed you to 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 not have as much right. strength. I think it, it it made you you know like you didn't have as much of a force, right? And it also also opened itself up for for conversations probably that were not were not uh, true, you know. Mm. When you're not talking with each other all the time, a lot can be lost in translation. And I don't, I never looked at the South End even though they may have been my relatives as being my relatives because they weren't in my community. So in like the South End of Yarmouth, like, you know, the black community there and the, the black community in Greenville, like were there different, like was work different? Like did, were there different opportunities in the South End? So there'd be different skills required or different people working there. Uh, and then in Greenville, you have like, you're a little further outside of Yarmouth. So maybe it's, more agriculture i don't know like is it like is there like something to do with the opportunities or what did the people from greenville go into yarmouth and do the same thing that the people from the south end did i found that you know looking back and reflecting the people who were in greenville in yarmouth were more of a traditional um person of color in the sense that there almost everybody had a garden so everybody tried to be self-sufficient mm -hmm. right you grow your own vegetables you'd have maybe some cattle or some pigs or something like that um 
more of an entrepreneurial type of setup. Everybody was just like that. And yeah, and it was all a big, big yes. family. Right. Like my, my dad, even today, if he goes down to fish kayaks, when the first run of kayaks comes, if he catches 50, even though he can get good money for those, he'll take those 50 and spread them out to different families in the community and take it to them. Right. Okay. So very community based. And that's like the, you know, what we see with a lot of these communities, how, you know, the entrepreneurial side of things, right? Giving back to the community. Right. And you don't see a lot of that now. I mean, when we built our house, I remember all the people from the road came to help us pour our foundation. And at that time, it wasn't a big cement truck comes in right. and just pours it right in. We had to do it. We were doing it in a barrel. You know, and yeah, he had like a string a of 10 guys, <laughs> one guy yeah. mixing, another guy pouring in, somebody takes it five feet, somebody else. And then it was like a line. Assembly right? line. Of, of, uh, <laughs> yeah. And if we had a, a corn boil and some baked beans and some bread, that's mm. what we did to celebrate, right? So for, and then for context, that wasn't that long ago, really, right? Not really. No. no. Yeah. It wasn't. And, you know, you might be able to, in some communities like in Weymouth and in places like that, get four or five guys together to do somebody's roof who has a leak. Um, but other than that, trying to get people to come together now is a lot harder than it was back in the day. Yeah. A lot harder. So you briefly talked about your father, but I know he was significant in the community. Um what was his role like in the community? Um, I get a sense of it, but you want to talk a little bit more about about your father? Sure, sure. Yeah, Dad, Dad was very well known in the community. He he headed up, uh, was the president of the Greenville Community Center, and now he's passed that on to my brother, who is the, the um, president of the new community center. But Dad was always there to for the community. If somebody needed uh, help with something, um, he would be there. Somebody needed a haircut. My dad did haircuts. Um, they wanted to learn how to spar a bit, you know, mm -hmm. down the basement. He had a, a bag and we would go down there. So our place was kind of like a, I don't know, an outside rec center, if you will, because we had basketball, we had a field, we would go play soccer. Uh, he was always involved in, uh, we had the first all black um, softball team that I know of. You I know? remember that. Yeah, right? that's right. And we, we were dead. Your dad played on it. Yeah. It was called A&W, and we were probably one of the most feared teams around. We had five or six guys that could put it out. My dad, he could hit them yeah. out, too. So we had we had a lot of heavy hitters. So nobody really, I mean, we played but a game. Every time we came, if we went out to where it was French, uh, speaking like in, in Belleville or Amaro's Hill and those places, there's a lot of racism going on. And the funny thing, they didn't realize that I understood French. So I caught on to what they were saying. Oh, really? Right? And we, yeah, so we ended up, there ended up being a lot of, it was, it was very contentious at times. Wait, hold on a second. Tell me more about this because I think it's interesting because we've talked about the indigenous community, talked about the black community and also the French community. And so I think a lot of people forget like the so sure and how like the cultures there are all intertwined. And, you know, I'll share this with you. Like the reason I've said this before, I used to go up the line. I used to go mm -hmm. up to like Church Point and Mavalette. So there's a French community there as well too. But you're talking about 
some of the race racism that existed there what was it like going into those communities when you know that people are looking at you because i know what i felt like but it probably was even more overt for for you and you you and your family and friends at that time right oh yeah right well the only time we went there is if we were playing a sport that was it that was all right because if you went there any other time i mean you know you could get the cops would be called or somebody coming out i know my net even my nephew who's who would be probably a little younger than you guys he went out to a french community i won't mention it and it was a dance and he went and he was just standing there and my nephew is probably one of the straightest guys you could ever meet and friendliest and kind and somebody just came up out of nowhere and punched him in the mouth right just punched him in the mouth for no no reason at all didn't deserve it at all but those are the types of things that can happen because people think go what are you doing here segregation you shouldn't be here not you're not you're not welcome in that community that's it so you're not going to go back and i have to mention this and it's it's kind of uh, you know in the job that i do I, i deal and hear about a lot of different things and one of the things i heard about today was that somebody actually used the word describing our society today as being post racism and i said post racism where have you been right so it's like you say it's still existing but there's people who are beyond i've never heard understanding believe me (laughs) believe me i heard it i heard it and uh you're lucky that you're in the room though because i think it's now our duty to correct people oh no question and and let people know that no post racism i like my favorites reverse racism you know yeah that's my favorite yeah. one it's reverse <laughs> racism like yeah. mm, eh, guys it's not the same thing you know yeah. um so it's really interesting you know what you talked about your you know uh your house and having that heavy bag down there and we know that some good fighters came from greenville yes Yes. And so what's the significance of boxing in, in Greenville? Um, and we've, Larissa and I go back and forth. We love boxing. I think, you know, people don't talk about some of the rural communities in terms of boxing. Please tell us, drop some knowledge on us about the boxing history in Greenville. Well, you know, it goes back quite a few years. But I knew that there were some good fighters that came out of Greenville. And one of them was my uncle was known as the Greenville Flash. And I guess he received that name because when he was in the military, he used to do some boxing matches and that's the nickname that they gave him. So when my dad was at a young age, he was 16 when he moved from Yarmouth and went out west. And my uncle Leroy, um, the Greenville Flash, took him under his wing and my dad seen my uncle have a few fights and also trained he showed my dad how to punch and stuff like that so that's how my dad got involved so when dad came back when he was 19 years old it's funny because he went out there at 16 lied about his age so he could work for three years and then he came back when he he bought a car he was driving back he got to montreal he was too tired had to sleep in the car for a minute went in to use the washroom somebody broke in his car and took everything that was valuable to him and then he drove back home to to Yarmouth so 
when he got back to Yarmouth, um, he wanted to try and, and do well, right? So he went to Halifax and he was in the, the military for a bit. And he also loved to keep in shape, my dad, always. So he decided, uh, he'd seen that there was a little boxing club there with Keith Paris and those guys. And uh, so he went in and started sparring. And they, they seen what his talent was. And they said, well, you know what? Let's, let's schedule some fights. So he had the first fight, one, second fight, one, third fight, he won. So my dad had, I think, 12 fights. And uh, 11 of them were by knockout. And <laughs> the only one was, one was a draw. And the reason why he said it was a draw is because he, he, had, he was sick when he actually took the fight on. He had the flu, but he took it on anyway. Uh, but my dad had a, a very short but illustrious career. He was supposed to go pro over in the U.S. And, um, but at that time, he, you know, mom was pregnant at the time. And he really didn't want to leave Nova Scotia. So he decided to stay here. Um, but that's, that's uh, and, the, and the thing is, what's really interesting that I found out through conversations that I had since my mom passed away is that dad loved boxing. He knew he had a talent. He figured he could have went far, maybe not be the champion in the U.S., but he knew he could go far. But he he uh, did it for the money, right? Right. You know, well, because just trying to survive, right? Yeah. Because he was doing three jobs when he was a boxer as well. He would get up at 4.30 in the morning. He would run the yeah. commons. Then he would come back and get ready for work and do uh, truck delivery. And then at night, he'd work at the chocolate factory. You know, to, to do all that just to make sure his family of, of four, you know, could could do okay. And then he said the amount of money that he was making, he said when he got his check at the end of the week, he told my, my mom, he said, I just want to throw it in the garbage. It's just not worth it, mm. you know, but he stuck it out. They were there for five years from the time I was born, and then they moved to Yarmouth. He said, we can have a better life in Yarmouth, and that's 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 the mm -hmm. story. And so... so we have my uncle Leroy. We have my dad from Greenville that I know of, right? What was your dad? What was your dad's nickname? Sorry, uh, uh, Iron Jaw. Iron yes, Jaw. That's right. Right. Yeah. The Greenville so, class. I love it. Right. So uh, the Iron Jaw. So he he was given that name by by uh, promoters and whatnot in Halifax as well because he was supposed to. He sparred with uh, David Downey at the time, and. He was supposed to, David Downey was, I think, the, the middleweight champion at that time. And uh, my dad wanted to fight David Downey, but David Downey wouldn't take that fight. Because, you know, when you're at a certain level, you, you want to Risk build up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. So, so at the end of my dad's career, they, they put it in the paper. Keith Paris put in the paper. Sheridan Lawrence will take any challengers. Um Let's go, and and nobody would come forward. So that's kind of I'm when I'm gonna find it, that clip. I'm gonna find that newspaper yeah. clip. Let's do that. Yeah, that's when it abruptly ended. But my dad fought in Bridgewater. He fought um, in Sydney in Halifax. Basically, oh, wow. that's that's where he fought, like locally in in Nova Scotia. Uh, before I cut, sorry, I cut you off there, Troy. Were you gonna mention some other boxers from the area? Um. Well, you probably heard of Sam Langford. Well, yeah, from Weymouth right? Falls, right? Yeah, yeah, from Weymouth Falls. You know. A lot of people know quite a bit about Sam, and I'm not professing that I know any more than anybody else, but I'll tell you a story that mm -hmm. I do know. 
is that he was approximately about 175 pounds, they said, 175 to 185, and he was five foot seven. But when he was fighting, he fought all weight classes. So at that time, if you got in the ring, it didn't matter if a guy was 6'5", didn't matter if he was 4'2", that's who you were fighting, right? And uh, he had something like the average fighter, you know, in their career, if they're really good, if they do 60 fights, yeah, you know, you're, you're pushing it, yeah, right? You know, this guy, Sam Langford, the Boston Terror baby, he did over 200 mm-hmm. fights. That's okay. Fighting to survive, man. Like, yeah, and in the last fight he fought, he was blind. What? Right. But he still, yeah, he still took the fight on, even though he was blind. So he was going by the person's footsteps and figuring out his own distance to get through that fight. And you know, he lived for many years in a in a basement uh, in Boston. And, you know, to this day, the last day that, that he had his life, he was still smiling and a very, very happy and jovial person. Yeah. But anybody who took on that many fights and whatnot, if they they were not marginalized, they would have, you know, he was he was one of the top two boxers, two, two or three boxers of all yeah. time. Well, I mean, thanks for like, you know, the the like history lesson on boxing and the significance it really highlights everything you know all the conversation that sean and i had about boxing within the communities and what it like signified uh going back to like greenville uh like how was like when you were growing up there like how was community defined you talked about you know they were self-sufficient uh very resourceful uh like how was that like close-knit how was it how did everybody like feel was there a central gathering spot other than the community center, or was it just that? Like, you know, tell us a little bit about the identity of the community. Well, Larissa, well, you bring up some really, really good points and also some fond memories. I mean, when I think about community and I think about marginalized communities, there are basically three pillars. Number one, the community. Number two, having a community mm-hmm. center. And number three, the church, mm-hmm. right? You know, everybody went to the church, and all the little kids always had Sunday mm-hmm. school, you know. And th- those are o- always extremely, extremely fond memories. And a lot of the stuff that we did, we did together, right? We always had, you know, always used to be 15 kids together, you know, playing games. Whether And, and we didn't have any technology back then. It was just being around each other, seeing how fast you could run seeing how quick you could move with a soccer ball because we we didn't play regular soccer maybe that's why i was pretty good we played tackle soccer <laughs> yeah. right so if, if, if they if you were by the ball they're getting it right so those are the types of things that we did and, and we which made us inherently uh physically active and, and and to be able to excel at different things maybe more than others so we, we, you know, it was, it was a, a very, very close-knit family. Uh, there wasn't anybody's door in the community that I couldn't go to and not feel comfortable of saying I'm yeah. here. Um, you know, we had, it was, the neighborhood was a watch, right? Right. <laughs> the whole neighborhood watched out for everybody. And we all pitched in, like I mentioned before, to help each other get things done. So... That's just the way it was. It was a beautiful thing. And unfortunately now, when I look at our communities, they don't have the three things, right? Mm -hmm. And they don't have a lot of the youth 
and the yeah. children living there anymore. So what do you right? attribute that to? Like the the change from, you know, the the close knit, the tight, the engaged interaction to today where it's like I don't really hear much about the church. Like I don't really hear much about the community centers anymore. Yeah. So. I you know, I think And this 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 may seem like a long shot to but the more you think about it it makes sense. It goes back to the systematic and colonization that was ingrained ingrained in us to try and make us not stay together. Right? So by not having any type of education about who you are, what you stand for, why you're here, how you got here, you have a tendency to buy in and drink the Kool-Aid and say, this isn't where I should be. And I want to be like somebody else who I'm not. So that may mean moving to town. It may mean buying a house that you can't afford. Maybe all of those things, right? Because you disassociate yourself from what you think you know, but you don't mm-hmm, really know. Mm-hmm. You really don't know. That's powerful. People in, yeah, people in our community uh, are survivors. They're, they're people who who make their own potato, you know, have their own gardens. Uh, you know, and people say, well, gee whiz, you look at their yard, everything's all clustered. Well, you know what? When you had a car or if you had uh, an extra whatever, you keep it because you don't know when you're going yep. to need it. Yeah. We hoard. Right? We have to. <laughs> yeah, because you can't afford to get another one, right? So if you take the old one off, you might be able to, you know, massage it so you can use it for, you know, that's the way our communities were. And that wasn't a bad thing, and it still isn't no. a bad thing. Minimize waste. No. Self-sufficient, right? Yes. right? You, you exactly. Know. We were forced to be self-sufficient. But with the educational system the way it is now and not knowing your history and where you came from, you feel you need to go. We just had a conversation about this and how different it would be if we knew our history growing yeah. up. Right, hundred percent. It's important for us to know that, and right? it encapsulates and our journey, Sean. Right, like this encapsulates everything yeah. that we're trying to do. Everything you just literally, and so it's so funny because, like, you know, we've both lived mm-hmm. away, we've both left, mm-hmm. and you know, um, but we find ourselves coming back. So I think that's it's interesting for like our generation, you know, knowing the history and passing that down, figuring out like how we can empower these communities as well too, and figuring out what we can do to give back. And I think that's why we're doing this. Speaking about the community as well too, we know that segregation existed in a lot of these historical communities, but I didn't know about the segregated school that existed in Greenville. And for me, growing up in Yarmouth, it just kind of resonated i'm like how did i not know that there was a segregated school that was literally 15 20 minutes away from where i grew up and we're talking about history and how that's been systematically kind of removed and not talked about um do you know anybody that attended like when it ended um anybody that was you know what kind of impact that left on the community and throwing this out here too we talked about learning within your community. Was it a good thing? Uh, you know what? At the time, 
it was good in the sense that it allowed the people who lived in that community to to feel comfortable in a learning environment, right? A lot of people back in that time, like my dad was born in 38. He actually went there until grade 10. Okay. So and he went to that school. Right. Right? So that school means it was probably around till so maybe 1952 or something like that. 54 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that, right? So that makes sense. So he he went when, when he was small and he said he remembers going there and it was all grade levels, right? They were all together, one teacher. And look how long it has taken to have any type of representation of who we look like in the school system. Mm. So thinking back, in 1954, sort of say before 1945 to 1954, actually being able to go to school every day and being around people who look like you and having a teacher who looks like you is a positive influence. Yeah. Right? Versus not having any transportation at that time, how are you going to get to school anyway? Right? Accessibility. We talked about that, and that's a, lot, that's a big issue for a lot of our communities, right? These historical communities, because we were not from the major, uh, not close to the major urban center, right? Right. Whatever that may be, right? And yeah. so your dad kind of speaks positively about that experience. But so did he just finish at grade 10? Did he go into regular school afterwards or? No, that was it. Yeah. That was it. Because he couldn't I, get in, right? He couldn't. The transportation was an issue, right? Transportation. I remember at sixteen, he went out west. My right. my uncle, his older brother took him out west and said, "Hey, let let me give you a better yeah, life." Sunday, you know, right? make a difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a baby. Yeah, yeah. He was a baby of the family, so he went out there, and it was school of hard knocks because he he went to work on the Alaskan Highway, like so he was in the bush, um, mm. in the camps, with with you know a bunch of men, and you you worked. Right, that's what you did, and you know, and I'm I'm sure he wasn't the the majority, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. So that's a whole nother experience. That would have been really interesting oh, to hear. I sure. would love to hear that. Yeah. So he has a lot of stories. A lot of stories about, and, and you know, I'm just starting to learn. I probably learned more about my dad um, since my mom passed away than I did in, in all Our my years living with him. To your yeah. mother, yeah. man. For sure. Oh, thank you. To say that. Yeah. So he he talks talks a lot about things that they experienced and whatnot, which I you know he sheltered. They sheltered us yep. from that. You yep. know they sheltered us from that. And you know talking about the school, like if I asked him today, what was it like going to that school? I would hear something I hadn't yeah. heard before. Right. Because he never he never brought it up. Right. Yeah. He did. He tells my my son and my daughter. You know I remember walking down the streets in Yarmouth and I had to walk on one side and, and we weren't allowed to go to the theater and, you know, stuff like that. What's coming up in Yarmouth? Yeah, the theater. Yeah. <laughs> so, talking about, uh, you know, like, you know, your father leaving, you know, then coming back, uh, you know, relocating the, you know, doing the thing in Halifax, the Boston, then going back to the Greenville, building the house on, uh, you know, the land where the homestead was. Uh, you know, how was the situation uh, in Greenville when it came to land ownership? Like, was it owned by the, the residents or did they like have, you know, just access to the land? Like, how was the relationship with land? 
You know, it's an interesting question. When I look at our community, it seems like all the people who were living there had big lots of land, mm-hmm. right? They all had similar sized yeah. lots. Um, they all had places where they could have the gardens and and all of those things. So it, it's interesting because if we, you know, we forward ahead uh, 70 years, uh, we can see there's things out there about land titles and navigators yeah. and all this stuff. And it has got me thinking, you know, how, you know, how many people in our community actually own the land that they're cultivating? It's a great question. Yeah. It's a great question. I have a theory I, on that too. You know, I think being rural. And so like when Bruce said about like, you couldn't, you had to rent in yeah. town, mm-hmm. but this is uh, my theory and I could be corrected if I'm wrong, but, Greenville, like I said, not a lot of people knew about Greenville. No. So I think, you know, that a lot of people, they kind of flew under the radar. You know, you were able to probably get land at that time because you're isolated. You're not in, you're not in the, in in town. So you're isolated. So you have that opportunity there to be self-sufficient, to own land and to survive on your own. Right. Right. I, I think, you know, I don't know my grandfather and grandmother up in Weymouth, whether they, maybe they have deeds to the property. I know my dad inherited the land that he has from his dad, who was already there when we, when we moved there. So I really don't, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've seen a deed that dad has with respect to where everything is and whatnot, but I'm not sure how that came about, right. you know? You know, I, I really don't know. And it's it's interesting because when we do extend what's happening in the Halifax, Dartmouth area and some of the surrounding communities and we get out to the broader, you know, uh, communities, it's going to be interesting to see what we mm-hmm. discover. It could be, a, you know, a multi-leveled, uh, multi-layered yeah. onion. Right. Well, right. I mean, you answered another question that I had, like, and that was like, is it still within the family, that land? And you just said, like, it's still there. So that's great. What do you think the long-term health effects are of, you know, systemic racism? And how can that, how does that affect you on a day-to-day basis? I would never profess to be a psychologist, that's for sure. <laughs> You're doing but a great one thing job. I, Lived yeah, experience. One thing, yeah, yeah. One thing I can say is that it's alive and well. I mean, I've talked to I've talked to some people who I can tell are traumatized, well-educated people, um, because of experiences that they've had. I mean, we can feel like we're making strides, major strides in who we are and what we're doing, but the microaggressions are just that; they're constant, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and we see people making efforts. To try and, and, and make sure that some things don't happen. But we still have a long way to go. A long way to go. Equity is it's a small word, but it has amazingly huge implications. That's so true. Right? And, you know, equity, you know, it's interesting. To get to equity, people have to understand we don't all start at the same spot. And mm-hmm. that approach of, you know, and I always, it's so funny because people talk about equality, then equity, but I'm like, no, it's, that's reverse. You need equity yeah. first before you can get it anywhere close to equality. And it's a small wor- word, but it's so powerful. And 
we're a long ways away from being there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a long, long way. We have to learn how to, you know, I heard somebody say the other day about navigating, navigating the ocean, right? We need to know how to, to feel as comfortable as everybody else when we step into the ocean. There's always going to be the shark that's there, and the shark might end up creating an event, just like George mm-hmm. Floyd. Right. Right? But how long is it going to take for us to be comfortable getting into the ocean and feeling like everybody else? That's a good point. When, when you think of it that way, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. Right? And, and so we talked about, um, before briefly, about allyship. And being a true ally. I don't even know if I really like the word allyship. I I don't know. It seems like, seems strange because people will say allies, like allies always come after. Mm-hmm. And I don't think allies should come after. I think they should be there the entire time supporting you. But what's your, what's your take on allyship? And, you know, what does it mean to be a true ally in that sense? Well, that's it. I mean... I think some people like to think they're an ally, but they're only an ally. They're not a true ally. They're an ally when they're at work, but it, it, you know, or they're an ally when they're with their black friend working out. Right. You know, it's a it's it's kind of like a stage allyship. But if you want to be a true ally, you have to be a true ally when you go to sleep at night and when you wake up in the morning, right? All day long, 24 hours a day. And a lot of it is, number one, is showing up, right? If you say you're going to be a part of something, show up, right? And if you show up, then, and you say you're going to be a part of it, then do actions that, that, that prove that, right? Don't talk about, oh, I should have done or hold something in. You know what's right or wrong. And you need to be able to express that right away. And sometimes it's not going to come out politically correct. Mm-hmm. But you need to be, if you're a white male, six foot tall, good looking, and you're in a crowd of white males who look the same way, and somebody says something off color, you need to correct them. Right? Or just not just say, oh, because I'm with these guys, yeah, I can fit in. But right. when I go to work tomorrow... And Sean's sitting beside me, then, oh, I'm a different person now. I'm an ally again, right? It's all, it speaks about your circle, right? And something you right. mentioned there about being around other white people and, you know, acting different, right? Because of fear of fear of being called out. Well, what, why can't I say that? You know, I'm amongst right. my friends and peers here, right? But mm-hmm. no, in reality, it's, you know... I think that's the complexity of being white. Well, isn't that something, right? You know, exactly. you're right. You know, you know, that moral side of things. I know it's wrong, but uh, I let it go because, you know, they look just like me. Right. Right. So, so I'll give you an example, which is really mind boggling to me. I was part of a presentation and somebody was telling me what a presentation they were in. And somebody came in and had numerous slides and all the slides for the presentation all depicted the same type of person, which was white people, right? White males, right? There was no diversity in everything that was there. And then we were analyzing what happened. 
you know, why is this not a diverse presentation? And then somebody had put in the chat and said, uh, you know, do you think it may have been because the availability of, of culturally diverse people is hard to get your hands on? And I'm saying to myself, with technology today, it took you how long to put together that presentation? How many other sets of eyes would have reviewed that presentation? And now you're going to be presenting that presentation to an African Nova Scotian. There are no excuses. No, not at that point. Point now. <laughs> <No>. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Done. You know? Yeah. Wow. Wow. So we talked about you know, people leaving uh, Greenville. Given the, the change in, you know, population that, you know, has happened over the years, like what is the current population of Greenville? Oh, my. I think we're probably at around, we'd be lucky if we were at 50, 60 people now. Wow. Yeah. And what was it, like what yeah. was the population when it was at its peak? I probably I would say it's probably around two hundred, two fifty. Yeah, declining. Yeah, with all the communities. Yeah. yeah, and you know we can shake our heads and say, "Gee, was you know what can we do?" But it gets back to making the community affordable, mm-hmm. right? And if you make it affordable by the ways that I've talked about, uh, helping make the house affordable, heat pumps, insulation. Um, making sure they have potable water, maybe an extension, um, being able to cultivate the land, all of those things, it makes it better for people who are coming in. And if you have a functional church, you have a good uh, recreational yeah. center, those, the community yeah. will grow. But if you don't have that and you don't know who owns what land and you're trying to, to buy a piece of land and this, that, and the other thing, a lot of people, when they go away, figure when they come back, they have to be bigger mm-hmm. and better. It's not necessarily that way. Yeah. Right? It's just being around and being a part of a community, being around something that you, you grew up with and it's familiar to you. So you don't have to mm-hmm. think about things. Things have gotten so clouded by status and, and, and circumstance that sometimes we, we don't take the path of least resistance. We make things complex instead of making them simple in the complexity mm-hmm. unfortunately so troy what message do you have for future generations about greenville what would you like people to know about the community greenville is one of the 50 uh, black loyalist established communities when i say black loyalist established is that the people who have migrated from way back in the 1700s and came to Shelburne, our descendants of black loyalists. And as they spread out throughout Nova Scotia, Greenville was a very, very well-known place. It was a vibrant, vibrant community for, for many years. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately now, it's, it's a place where it's just made up of 90% elders, right? But there's a lot of stories to be told. And if you're looking for history, and if you're looking for stories in first voice that allow us to understand our history, it's so worth taking the time to go and have that visit. You know, be involved in a community event 
that we have going on there. So you can come and see the elders. They appreciate seeing younger generations uh-huh. so much. And they have such great knowledge. It's grassroots yeah. knowledge. Yeah. It's knowledge that allows you to appreciate the resilience of these people and the life that we have yeah. today. Awesome. You know? Yeah, it's because yeah. of them. It really is. Yeah, really we've been is. riding on, on their shoulders for so many years. I, you know, if I had to live in a pit house today, how would we handle that? You know, even if it was a bright, sunny day in the summer, it would still really have an effect on us. And yeah. you think that they did that through a whole winter. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Loyalist Connections podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some new insights. This episode was produced by your host, Maurice Gabriel Downey, and myself, Sean Smith, of the Loyalist Connections Creative Group. We want to send out a special thanks uh, to our community partners, the Black Cultural Center and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society for their continued support. And shout out our alma mater, St. Mary's University, especially the St. Mary's University Goresbrook Research Institute Partnership for making resources available to us to complete this project. We encourage you to join us as we continue to host these meaningful conversations and uncover information on our communities and other important aspects of our history. In the meantime, don't forget to listen, like, follow, and share the Loyalist Connection podcast on all your favorite platforms. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connection Podcast for updates and behind-the-scenes content. And until the next episode... Stay connected. connected.